nice of the Golden West Diner to be named after God's Golden Girls. What, a, what an amazing thing. Make sure you guys support those people. They are doing God's work over there. And I just found out something. This year is actually my golden anniversary. Do you guys know what that is? I just found out, so I don't know. Um, so it's our 18th anniversary on July 18th. And uh, so, yeah, that's golden. I just learned something. So golden year. Yeah, you got it. whatever. It's good. <laughs> I didn't think I'd make it. So, yeah, let's go. Um, it's golden. But I'm um, so excited to see each and every single one of you guys here today. And I want to say a special hello and welcome to everyone, but especially anybody who might be new or visiting with us for the first time. I am well aware it's so easy for so many people to kind of slip in and out of this place. And we don't want that. We want to make sure that we say hi to you and give you a warm welcome. So this is your first time here. Would you just kind of wave so we can say hello to you guys? Any first time? Timers here. All right, we got a first time family right here. Where that? Keep waving, keep waving. I got to see you. Ah, oh, there you go. I was in the back. Good to see you guys. So thankful for you guys being here with us today. I'd love to just say hello to you, shake your hand, give you a hug, or connect Bluetooth, however you feel comfortable. Um, but also, on behalf of the leadership, we just welcome you. We have a little gift for you guys. We'll, uh, if you guys could stop by and see me in the foyer. But I am so excited to share God's word with you guys this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 24 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. And the first two chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is really focusing on the wisdom of the world in comparison to the wisdom of God. And these things couldn't be more polar opposite from one another, but Corinth, the city in which the Apostle Paul was writing this letter to, it was the intellectual, philosophy, uh, uh, philosophical, intellectual. T- <laughs> that is so funny. Um, intellectual philosophy, <laughs> intellectual capital of the world. Okay, and uh, so man, philosophers would come from all around, and they would debate and talk about the deeper and higher things of just. The philosophies and different worldly wisdoms and the things of life. And so what was happening, the reason he had to write this letter is because the culture was changing the church. The wisdom and the philosophies of man were beginning to corrupt the church. And they were combining the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And so the apostle had to spend the first two chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians to talk about the differences and how God makes foolish the wisdom of man. And that's what we'll take a look at here today, starting in verse 18, where it says this, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The Apostle Paul starts in verse 18 by talking this section specifically about salvation. And he starts in verse 18 by mentioning a phrase called the word of the cross. And so since he begins with talking about the word of the cross, it's important and of the utmost 
understand, we understand exactly what that phrase, the word of the cross, means. The word of the cross, simply put, is the gospel. That's what the Apostle Paul is referring to here, the gospel. And the word of the cross, it refers to God's complete plan on reconciling man. And so he begins by talking about this word of the cross. And as we see in verse 18, we find out a little bit something about the word of the cross. It says it is foolishness to those who are perishing. The word of the cross, the gospel message, God's revealed love for his people, the Greeks and those who were perishing, they saw it as foolishness. Now again, the highly intellectual Greeks in Corinth, they saw the gospel as foolishness because it was just too simple for them. Like we said, it was the intellectual capital of the world and the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel, it didn't appeal to their fleshly desires. It didn't, it it wasn't complicated enough for them. It wasn't deep enough for them. And so they saw it as foolishness. The whole idea that God can reconcile man and that God can have a relationship with man based off faith alone That man can be saved, that man can be reconciled to God by grace through faith. That all man has to do is deny oneself and follow Jesus, that it's that simple. It was just too much for them. It was too simple and they saw it as foolishness. Those who were perishing viewed it that way. But in verse 18, if you have your own Bible, it says right there, but to those who are believing and to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's a big but right there. And I encourage you just to circle that if you have in your Bible, because that's when things turn. One group of people saw it as foolishness. Those who were perishing, but those who were being saved saw it as the power of God. What a stark contrast. From those who saw it as foolishness, those who were perishing, they looked down upon it. It was too simple. It was stupid in their eyes, moronic. But those who were being saved, it was the power of God unto salvation. Those who received it by faith, they got to see the power of God. They experienced the miracle of regeneration in their life. And so they got to see the power of God. And that's what the power of God is. Making one who was dead alive. That is the power of God. And that's what the gospel is. We're reminded of what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We need not be ashamed of the gospel. And so with this contrast that we see here, we see that there's really two types of people, two classes of people, two groups of people that the Bible makes very, very clear in verse 18. It says those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And so before we go on any longer, we have to step back and ask ourselves, which group are we in? There's only two. There's not a middle group. There's not an almost group. There's those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And we have to really ask ourselves, which group are we in this morning? Well, how do we know which group we are? And how do we decide? What's the deciding factor to be placed in one of those groups? It's very, very simple. The deciding factor to find out if we are perishing or being saved is our response to the gospel, our response to the message of the cross. You can be in a group that is perishing simply by rejecting the gospel, but also you can be in a group that's being saved by receiving the gospel message. And so when Paul says that we are being saved in that phrase and in that statement alone, we see the progressive nature of the steps that have to do with salvation. 
Step one, when we open up our heart and we receive the gospel, the message of the cross, when we receive it and open our heart to it, the first step that happens is we are saved, being saved from the penalty of sin, eternal separation from God in a real place called hell. When we open up our heart and receive the Lord Jesus Christ, the salvation begins in our life. Step one, we're saved from the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. And that's what each and every single one of us deserved. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But those who receive the message of cross, the first aspect, point of salvation, is we are saved from the penalty of sin. The second step that we begin to see as we open up our heart and as we allow the sanctification process in our life, the closer that we get to God, we realize that we are now saved from the power of sin. So it starts with the penalty and then the power of sin. Those who were under the control of the evil one were slaves to sin. We don't do those things that we want to. We are controlled by an evil ruler whose desire is to steal, kill, and destroy. And when we open up our hearts and we press in to God, we're received, we are delivered from the power. We are saved from the power of sin. He no longer has control, authority, or power over us. And so the first two steps, the penalty and the power. I remember early on uh, when my son was young, being a pastor's kid, he knew enough about the Bible to be dangerous, right? And um, I remember one time it came time to discipline him and Malachi was, you know, he was trying to, you know, plead his case and trying to get out of it so that he wouldn't get disciplined. And he had his final straw, his trump card. Hey, buddy, we need to, we need to talk in the room. And right before the discipline took place, he said, Dad, the devil made me do it. <laughs> and I stopped the discipline and I gave him a four-point sermon that lasted about two hours that you are delivered from the power of sin. The enemy no longer has control over you. And it's so important that we understand that the devil doesn't make us do it. We make our decisions. We're free. Those who have received the message of the cross are free from the penalty and the power of sin. He no longer has control over us. And so we can't say that anymore. And I can't give that guy more credit than he deserves. We are free and he is a defeated foe. We've been delivered. We have been saved from the penalty and the power of sin of sin. The final and the last part of salvation, the third step is that we will be freed from the presence of sin. And that will happen when we see Jesus face to face upon his return. And so that's what he means by we are being saved, saved from the penalty, the power, and soon the presence of sin. And so in verse 9, the apostle Paul begins to quote Isaiah chapter 29 and he does this to show and prove that God not only dismisses but truly destroys the wisdom of man this was a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah many many years prior to this the wisdom of man compared and contrasted to the wisdom of God is something that we've struggled with for many many years placing emphasis and high regard in the intellectual of our day. And we begin to mix it and blend it, and that's not the case. God's wisdom is much higher, and he dismisses and he destroys the wisdom of the wise. And he quotes that from Isaiah chapter 29. And him dismissing and destroying the wisdom of the wise, this is something that we've consistently seen from the very beginning with God. God works and he moves in ways that seem foolish according to man's wisdom. They don't go together. The way that God moves, the way that God works is so different from man's wisdom, man's point of view, where that's why man, the unregenerate man, sees it as foolishness. Because it doesn't make sense to them. And that is the way and the mystery of God. 
God has always done things like, I remember, you know, and it's been consistently like that throughout all the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. You remember God chose to use the blowing of trumpets to tear down the walls of Jericho. Does that make sense in man's eyes? Defeating, we're going to just go around and just blow some trumpets and the walls are going to come down. Man's wisdom would say, what? Blow trumpet? Man would laugh and they would mock and they would scoff upon that. Man's wisdom would mock and scoff Gideon, that God would use, take Gideon's army from 32,000 to 300 to defeat the mighty army of Midian. They were already outnumbered by thousands upon thousands. The wisdom of man would say, no, do not do that. But the wisdom of man is foolishness in God's eyes. It doesn't make sense. You can't put the two together. You think about the time when God used the mighty, mighty Samson to defeat a whole army by himself with weapons of mass destruction. No. A machine. No. A knife? A sword? No. The jawbone of a donkey. That's what God used to defeat a whole army by the hands of Samson. These things do not make sense. But it confirms what the Word of God says, that he he uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. The wise don't understand, and God is using the jawbone of a donkey to confound the wise, it does not make sense, but his ways are so much higher than ours. And even that phrase alone, that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, that is our testimony, amen? If somebody asked you for a 10-second testimony, you should be able to say God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, because that's what he does in the life of each and every single one of his people. That's my testimony, that God uses the foolish things. And he uses them in in powerful and mighty ways. That God uses you and I. We have nothing to bring, nothing to offer, but he uses us in an amazing way to pray for people, to lead people to the Lord, to do his work. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who spoke the world into existence, uses us, you and I, to do great things. That is absolutely amazing and humbling. And people stand back in, in awe. And that message alone, that God would use people like you and I, would cause the wise, the intellectuals of the world to just say, this is so foolish. One of the times that I got to see this firsthand, I remember when God first called me into ministry. And God came on staff here at Calvary Chapel West Grove as the junior high pastor. It was an exciting time, was passionate about serving the Lord. But this was a very interesting time um, because when I got to come on staff and, and serve the Lord full time as a junior high pastor, I had to call my parole officer. You see, I was still on parole from the law. And I remember calling him and saying, hey, I got a new job. And I had already had a few jobs, so he was really worried about me and my insecurity, my instability. And he was like, you got a new job. That's three jobs in a short amount of time. You know, I'm going to violate you if you can't get it together. And he's just giving me the, the up and down, right? And he's like, all right, so where are you working at? I got to stop by and see this. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, I'm, uh, I'm working at a church. Crickets. <laughs> Nelson, where are you at? I'm going to come violate you right now. I don't have time for your games. Uh, uh, No, I'm serious. I'm I'm working at a church. What are you doing at a church? I'm a junior high pastor. (laughs) And he just started laughing. I think he thought, well, I know he thought I was joking. So he's laughing and he's just going on. No, no, really, where are you working? At a church. (laughs) He's just going on and on. And finally, he's like, okay, you're really writing this story out. Where's the address? And I'll never forget, he walks up, he pulls up into the parking lot, he's like, oh, it's a real church. (laughs) 
I opened the door. He's like, what is going on? He's like, this is something. He, he thought it was a sham. He's looking around, and I walk into the office. The receptionist says, hey, Pastor Eric. And he's like, this is good. You're really riding this thing out. You know? He goes up to my office. He sees a placard. He's just like, this is real. I go, yeah, man. What is going on? It made no sense to him. How in the world's eyes, I'm useless, I'm worthless, I'm uneducated, I'm a criminal, I'm all these things, and they're going to hire me to be a pastor and to work with junior high kids? He wouldn't trust me mowing his lawn. It didn't make sense to him. And he was just blown away. And in awe, that's what God does. God sits up there just smiling. Look at this guy. This guy thinks he's useless, but I see something useful in him. And it's not just me, it's all of us. That's what God wants to do. That's what God desires to do, to use the simple. I'm a simpleton. I want to be a simpleton. I want to rely wholly and fully upon the Lord and God. Use me, use us to confound the wise. And so to further illustrate his point, the Apostle Paul in verse 20, he puts out a challenge asking the question, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? He asks this, it's kind of rhetorical, but he knows they're nowhere to be found because the wisdom of man can't stand upon or compare to the wisdom of God. And so in this verse, Paul is paraphrasing Isaiah chapter 19. And in doing so, he's likening the intellectuals of his time in Corinth to the same prophecy that the prophet Isaiah spoke about, about the leaders in Egypt in Isaiah chapter 19. The leaders in Egypt, they spoke these profound words and these very lofty ideas, but they never materialized. They never came to nothing. They never amounted to anything, and they weren't good for the people. And we see that today. People can say, and they can talk, and they can ramble. The intellectual elitists of our world, they can say all these things, but it never amounts to anything. And that's what he's talking about here. And specifically in context, remember, he's talking about salvation, the message of the cross. And so from the very, very beginning, the existence of man, what the Apostle Paul was proving, that man could not and cannot, and it's all of its wisdom, come up with a way to reconcile man to God, to reach God. Man can't do it. There's nothing we can do to have a relationship with God, to be at peace with God. And so that's what he is talking about here. But not only that, also there's nothing that man can do to the debaters or couldn't say anything to the Apostle Paul. They couldn't disprove anything that God said or anything that God has done. And so he said, where are they at? And he knew that they were nowhere to be found. Then the Apostle Paul follows it up with another question, asking, has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? They're nowhere to be found. Where's the debaters, the scribes? They're nowhere to be found because God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. The world. This would have been a powerful statement for the readers in Corinth. And I think if they were to contemplate it honestly, and I think equally so, if we were to ask ourselves, have God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? If we were honest, we'd say, of course he has. Not just once, but time and time again. God continuously and constantly makes foolish the wisdom of the world. So many instances. We can spend all day going round and round. For instance, you think of a man named Aristotle, highly esteemed in the world's eyes for his wisdom and his intellectual prowess, one of the wisest men he is referred to that has ever lived and walked the earth. Aristotle was on record believing and teaching that the universe was eternal. 
The universe was eternal. It was without beginning or without end. Now, that's what his wisdom and the wisdom of man, the wisdom of Aristotle, that's what he had come up with. Well, it took God to debunk that. It only took him three words. The first, the third word in the Bible, it says in the beginning. You see, God says that everything was created. The universe, the galaxies, the earth, and all those things were created. He says in the beginning that things had a start. Aristotle says it different. It didn't. It was without beginning or end. And as we know, science has proven that the word of God is true and how foolish the wisdom of Aristotle and how foolish the wisdom of man is and was. Aristotle, God has made his wisdom foolishness in his eyes. It's also very interesting that the intellectuals and the greatest and wisest minds of our time will try to teach us things like from 1920 to 2020. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but that's 100 years, right? It's pretty simple. 1920 to 2020, 100 years. But they will teach you that within that 100 years that the earth has aged 3 billion years. It's amazing. Now, again, I, I mean, maybe it's dog years. I'm not really sure what's going on. But, man, that, that's a lot to swallow. And 1920, well, the world is probably 200 million years old. 2020, it is 4 billion years old. What, what happened? The wisdom of man back then, it's been disproven time and time again. God makes it foolish. God's word has continuously been true. The wisdom of God is so much higher than the wisdom of man. It's also funny talking about scientists. I read an article recently that scientists, they were continuously warning people about the great dangers of taking baths when a bathtub was created. They told people, do not take baths. It's bad for your health. It's dangerous. It's all these different things sitting and soaking in a water. That's what scientists, the greatest minds of the time, that bathtub, do not do it. It's bad. Some of you guys still believe that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> some of you guys gave me some hugs. I'm like, yeah, you know. But, you know, <laughs> a lot of junior hires, you got to educate your kids, you guys. Uh, but they, they believe that. It's just so funny. The science, the wisest men of our time. You know, you think about it. I was looking online. On average to eight to ten years, science textbooks from the universities to the elementaries, they have to be revised. They have to be undone because every eight to 10 years, they realize, oh my goodness, we really had that wrong. We really made a mistake that this was this, this was that. And so they're constantly the wisest realizing their mistakes because the wisdom of man is foolishness in God's eyes. But there's but one book, the Holy Scriptures, that has never needed a revision, that has always continued to be true. And it's the word of God. God truly has made foolishness the wisdom of the world. And that is why in all of man's attempts, any of man's attempts, it always fails to know God through human wisdom. It will always fail because man's wisdom, the apostle Paul talked about in Romans chapter one, if we try to come to God in our own wisdom, it will be off and we will begin to worship creation rather than the creator. We begin to get confused and begin to think that we can have a relationship with God based off our merits or our good works or Things like that. And that will never, ever work. This is the idea behind the famous quote from Carl Metaris. He said, religion is man's attempt to reach God. But Jesus was God's attempt to reach man. 
Man in its wisdom can try to do different things, create religion, create policies, procedures, and works, and all these different things to get closer to God. But God has revealed how to do that, and it's through the message of the cross. So, man, we, we can't do it. Our wisdom will lead us astray. God continuously makes foolishness the wisdom of man. God cannot be found through human wisdom or merit, but only through the message of the cross. And that's why the Apostle Paul said in verse 21 that it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. It pleased God because God knew that man couldn't find him on their own merit, on their own wisdom, on our own intellect. As wise as we are, as intellectual as we are, there's nothing that we could do. And so it pleased God. And this shows God's heart and desiring a relationship with us. He knew that we couldn't, and so he did. He reached down to us. And if you're looking at verse 21, please don't, let's not skip over, let's not graze over the fact that it said that it pleased God. If you have your own Bible today, circle that. It pleased God to come up with a plan to reconcile man to himself. Now, if we just glaze over that, if we just jump past that, we will forget what God had to do to reconcile man. He sent his only begotten son to die the death that we should have. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. So he sent his son to be betrayed and to be beaten and to hang on a cross. And it said it pleased him to do so. What was the pleasure in that? The pleasure was you. The pleasure was I. Jesus said that. He said, for the joy that was set before me, I endured the cross. Jesus, what joy did you go through? He was able to look past. He was able to look through the cross and see you and see me, and it brought him pleasure to make a way that we could know him, that we can be reconciled to him. God takes pleasure in you, so much so that he's willing to die for you. You may be here today, and you may feel like nobody cares, that nobody's there, that nobody delights it, or nobody cares, but God does. And so circle that and know that. We pick up in verse 22, where it says, for indeed, Jews ask for a sign, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Apostle Paul makes a blanket statement in verse 22. Oftentimes, blanket statements are, are kind of hard to encompass and to get everything wrapped up in. But I believe this blanket statement is very, very true, that the Jews sought after a sign and the Greeks searched for wisdom. The Jews historically were known for this. They were known for seeking signs and miracles and wonders and the supernatural. So much so that in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus rebuked them for that. You might remember that. They wanted to see a sign. And Jesus said, a wicked and perverse generation seeks a sign. But he did give them a sign, and they did not receive it. They were blinded to it. There were several signs, but they missed it because their eyes were closed. The virgin birth, the resurrection, the miracles, there was sign after sign after sign. But signs aren't going to lead to faith. Signs weren't going to bring them to a saving knowledge and a faith in Jesus Christ, and he knew that. And so they just keep desiring and kept wanting more and more. And in that, we see that it's a very dangerous thing to place our faith and to build our faith around signs and wonders and miracles and the things of the supernatural. Why is that? 
Because when those things don't take place, then it becomes a stumbling block. God, where are you? I'm not seeing the miracles. I'm not seeing these things. God, have you departed? God, have you forsaken me? And that's when we have to go back to what we know, faith. That God will never leave us nor forsake us. But if we base our faith upon the signs and wonders and the supernatural, when those things are taking place, we'll get lost. I remember on as an early believer, man, one of the first things that God gave me a heart for as an early believer was worship. No, no, I can't sing, don't get it wrong, but, you know, but I love to worship. And I, as a new believer, I would just worship. You guys might remember, remember the goosebumps? Oh my goodness, I just, uh. And the song, when I first got saved, that I just had on repeat, was like, I can only imagine. You guys remember, oh, I can only imagine. You know, I, I, I got goosebumps in my head, hair started growing. It was like, it was amazing. I was just like, oh. And after a period of time of Walking with the Lord, I remember almost every single worship experience, I was just getting goosebumps all over. And the one time the goosebumps were there, I was like, oh, what happened? What's going on? And then it didn't happen again. And I equated God's presence to goosebumps. Don't do that, okay? God is always present. He habits the praises of his people. But for me, that was the case. And so I was stumbled for a moment to realize, no, no, God is always there. It doesn't go about what I feel. We're not based off feelings. We're based off facts, the truth in God's word. But if we're not careful, we can be stumbled by that, looking for the signs, wonders, and miracles. The mightiest of men have made that mistake. You guys might recall Gideon in Judges chapter 6 when God called Gideon. He appeared to him. He was hiding. He was a coward. He was fearful. And he was, you know, sifting through the wheat, and God approached him, and he says, Hey, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon looked around like, Somebody else here with me? Not me. He can't be talking to me. And God says, I have a plan for you, Gideon. And Gideon says, well, God doesn't have a plan for me. Where is God? And what did he equate the presence of God to? Where are the miracles? Where is the God who delivered our people from Pharaoh, parted the Red Sea? Where is God? God's nowhere to be found because he equated it to the miracles. And God didn't even answer Gideon. He said, Gideon, get up and go. I got a plan for you. Gideon made the mistake. And so it's a dangerous thing to place our faith upon miracles and signs and wonders. We can't do that. Faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God. That's what builds faith. That's what instills faith. The more we know God revealed through his word, that's what strengthens our faith. But the world then and even the world now still seeks a sign. Maybe you've shared your faith with somebody recently. And one of the most common phrases from skeptics is, well, where are all the miracles from the books of Acts? Where are people being raised from the dead? Where are all these different things? You show me some of those things and then I'll believe. Where God says, believe and you'll see. It's all about faith. See, but the skeptics, they still want a sign. But faith comes by hearing and the hearing the word of God. The more we trust and place our faith in him and know him through his word, we get to see him move. We get to know how he moves, how he works. God moves supernaturally, naturally. But the miracles are still taking place. But if we're not careful, if our eyes aren't open, spiritually awake, we would miss them. By a show of hands, how many of you guys would say that you've seen God do something miraculous or a miracle in your life? Look around. How many of you guys would say that you saw it in the past month? Something miraculous. How many of you guys want to come up and share that right now? <laughs> God is still moving. 
God is still working. And those are things that we need to share. Those are testimonies that we need to share with the people that the same God who raised Lazarus from the dead is the same God that is alive and on the throne today. And he's still raising people from the dead. People are dead in their sins and trespasses, but God is making them alive. He's doing a work. He's doing a revival. There's people in the Middle East, Muslims, that are seeing visions, that are coming to the Lord like never before. One of the strongest churches in the world is in China where it's persecuted, where they can't even gather together, and God is just revealing himself to them in supernatural ways. And so God is still moving. We don't base our faith upon signs and wonders. We base it upon the word of God. But God is a God of signs and wonders. He does miraculous things. But that's not what we cling to and we hold on to. That's what the Jews sought after. The Greeks, their search for wisdom, it wasn't in the wisdom of God, but it was in the philosophies of men. And they didn't do it to know more about God. They do it to puff up their own head knowledge so they can come around and debate and talk about the latest philosophies of the world and different viewpoints. And so the Jews wanted a sign. They wanted wisdom. And interesting enough, in, in verse 23, we see that the Apostle Paul wasn't concerned about what the Jews desired, about what the Greeks desired. The Bible says that he was faithful to the message of God to preach Christ and Christ crucified. I love that. The Apostle Paul didn't cater or coddle to the culture. He didn't water down the gospel. He didn't give them what they wanted to hear. And sadly, too many pulpits across the United States of America and the world are giving people what they want to hear rather than the word of God. They're catering, uh, uh, catering and coddling to the culture, making people feel good. He knew that the message of the cross was foolishness, but he preached Christ and Christ crucified. Why? Because he believed that it was the power of God unto salvation. He would preach the cross, the full gospel. He later would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that this is the gospel, his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the complete gospel. Talking about what, why he died. And that's what the Apostle Paul, what an encouragement for us today. To preach the, the gospel today more than ever. Not a feel-good gospel. There's parts of the gospel that feel great. I love it. But it's the fool. That is the power of God unto salvation. So he didn't change his message. Preaching Christ crucified or the gospel, he knew it was a stumbling block. As it says in verse 23, it was a stumbling block to the Jews. And it was a stumbling block to the Jews for a couple of reasons. The first reason, it didn't fit their agenda. It didn't fit with what they wanted, with what they desired from a Messiah, from a Savior. The, the thing that they wanted was a military leader. So someone to come in and to deliver them from the evil oppression of Rome. That's what they wanted. They wanted somebody to help them out with money and finances and to make them prosperous, the, nature that, uh, the nation that they once were. Deliver them. That's what they wanted. And so it didn't fit. A suffering servant. They, they didn't understand. And so it was a stumbling block to them. And sadly, there's still many today that the gospel message, the message of Christ, it doesn't fit people's lives today. There's people who love the idea of having a relationship with God, love the idea of spending eternity with God in a real place called heaven. They love that, they like that, but they want nothing to do with the message of submission, submitting themselves to a holy God, to be holy as he is holy, to, to pursue holiness. They want nothing to do with that. 
Oh, I, I don't want, I, I still want to do what I want to do. You mean I got to submit my life to you? I got to give you my life? I got to be a servant, a slave? I got to suffer persecution? I got to be willing to go where you want me to go and do what you want me to do? Oh man, I don't want nothing to do with that. I want to go to heaven and I want to have a relationship with God as long as I can do whatever I want. And so the gospel, the message of Christ and his plan of redemption for man, it doesn't fit what people want. And so in their pride, they reject it. The second thing was the stumbling block. Jesus died the death of a criminal and that was stumbling to them. Even though scriptures like Psalm 22, prophecies of Isaiah chapter 53, it revealed what the suffering servant, their Messiah must go through. But again, they were blinded because it didn't fit their agenda. So it was a stumbling block to the Jews. It was foolishness to the Gentiles. Why? Because it didn't fulfill their intellectual pride. It was just too simple. Can we just say praise God for the simplicity of the gospel? Can we say praise God for the simplicity of the gospel? Because I wouldn't be saved. If it was complicated, if it was difficult, I wouldn't understand it. I wouldn't be able to get it. I'd be like, oh my goodness, if I was just a little smarter, if I was just a little wiser, then I could understand God's plan for redemption. He makes it so easy that children could get it. That children could understand it. But it's just so easy. Some people say, oh, that's too, that's foolish. It's that easy. <laughs> foolishness, foolishness. It's crazy. The Apostle Paul understood this firsthand. He saw it in Acts chapter 17 when he was at Mars Hill, the place where people would gather together and they would discuss the hottest topics. They would debate issues of the day. And they were excited to hear what the Apostle Paul would say. We remember the story in Acts 17. So he got there and they said, we want to hear from you. They gave him the floor and they were all ears. They were open to learning and discussing until he talked about the death burial and resurrection of jesus christ at that moment it says get this mad babbler out of here he's crazy having a relationship with god based on faith through the death burial and resurrection get him out of here it's too simple it's foolishness so while the gospel was stumbling block to the jews foolishness to the greeks we see in verse 24 but those who were called those who were being saved it was both the power of God and the wisdom of God. What a difference. Again, we see two big buts in this verse, in this chapter, this section of Scripture. In verse 18, those who are perishing, but those who are being saved. Here, it's a stumbling block, it's foolishness, but to those who are being saved, those who are being called. It is both the power of God and the wisdom of God. And in that verse right there in verse 24, such a beautiful verse, we see how far off the wisdom of man was and missing the mark. Think about this. He had just got done talking about what the Jews sought after and what the Greeks desired. Both of those things was, were found in Christ Jesus alone. The power of God, the signs, the wonders, the miracles, the power of God, the wisdom of God, the deep Truths and precepts in God's word, both what the Greeks and Jews wanted were found in God, but they were blinded to it. How sad it is that they were both searching for that, which can only be found in Jesus Christ, but they were blind to it. It's sad that they had to do that, but it's equally sad we've made the mistake. I did the same thing for so long. At an early age in my life, this rebellious spirit came upon me. 
and I, and, I, and I desired to be free. I didn't want rules. I didn't want regulations. I didn't want nobody telling me what to do and what to go. And that's the, the, the same spirit that's been upon mankind from the beginning. Generation after generation, there's a rebellious spirit. Back in the 70s, it was the hippies. They just want to be free. Some of you guys are like, don't talk about me. <laughs> but that was, that was it. Freedom. Freedom. And in my pursuit for freedom and the wisdom of man and my rebellious quest for freedom, it got me just the opposite. The wisdom of man is foolishness in God's eyes. I wanted to be free. And so my search and my quest looking in the things of this world for freedom found me addicted in bondage to drugs and to alcohol and to all sorts of evil and wicked things. The quest for freedom and man's wisdom got me in bondage. But true freedom was found in Christ. God's wisdom is so different. What a great reminder for us that everything and anything that we need is found in Christ. Everything. What the Jews and the Greeks wanted, it was found in Christ, but they missed it. They were falling for the wisdom of the world that says all those things that you desire are found in other things. But we know, and we can never forget, that God continuously makes foolish the wisdom of man. And everything and anything that man desires, craves, wants, it's found in Christ protection, provision, deliverance. We can go on and on and on. It's found in Christ alone. And so if you're here today and you're searching, you're seeking, Jesus is the one that you're searching and you're seeking for. Anything and everything is found in him. And so in closing, let's preach the simple gospel, the full and simple gospel, knowing that is the power of God unto salvation. And remember, never forget, let's not ever try to blend and mix the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God because always God makes foolishness the wisdom of the world. And remember that God not only delights in you, but everything we need is found in him and him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you so much that we don't have to rely or depend upon the wisdom of man because we have all things pertaining to life and godliness is found in you and through your word. We thank you for making a way when there was none. God, we thank you for the gospel message that we couldn't and so you did. We thank you that we can be reconciled simply by placing our faith in you, God. God, help us to have a passion and a burden for the lost like never before. God, help us to truly not be ashamed of the gospel, knowing that it is the power of God unto salvation. Lord, give us a burden for the lost, a passion to share the gospel with anyone and all those around us, God. Lord, we're so thankful that anything and everything we need is found in you. God, help your people to press into you more today than ever before, to lean into you more than ever before, to find satisfaction and contentment in you and you alone, God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we saw and as we learned today that there's only two types of people, two groups of people, two classes of people, those who are perishing and those who are being saved.
In the very beginning, I asked us to contemplate that, to think about that. Which side of the aisle are we on? Are we those who are being saved? Are we those who are perishing? If you're here today and you are honest with yourself and say, man, I, I, I think I'm perishing, but I want to be saved, respond to the gospel. What is the gospel? What's good news? What's the good news? That God loves you and God made a way for you to be reconciled to him. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We deserved death, eternal separation from God. But he loved us so much. He delighted in us so much that he was willing to send his son to pay the price that we should have paid, to die the death that we should have died. And if we receive him, the Bible says for his men that received him, he's given them the right to become children of God because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He conquered the death. He conquered grave, and God can forgive us. He can be a righteous God and forgive you. If you're here today and you're separated from God, you're on the side that's perishing, it's only because you haven't received the forgiveness of God. And so today, open up your heart. Place your faith in Him. And when you do that, you'll be freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin in your life. Freedom is found in Christ. Through the sun sets free, they're free indeed. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to open up your heart and to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. To switch side. To leave the side that is perishing and to join the side that is being saved. And so if you're here today, I'm going to ask everybody to bow their heads and to close their eyes. And if you're here today and you know that you need Christ in your life and you're ready to receive him, the free gift of salvation is yours. He's reaching down his hand saying it's for you. Will you receive it today? If you're ready to make your decision to follow Christ, right where you're seated, I'm going to encourage you to take a stand right now so I can pray for you and I can pray with you. If you're here today, take a stand right now. I'm ready to receive Christ. I'm done running. I'm done doing things my way. I want to begin to do things God's way. I realized he's the one that I've been running from. I realized he's peace. He's forgiveness. I'm done. I want to receive him. Anybody here? I'm going to ask you just to take a stand so I can pray with you. You say you confess me before man, I'll confess you before my father. Take a stand. People praying for you, praying with you. Be free today. Anybody here? All right. All right. Well, we're going to have a time of communion, a time to commune with the Lord. And as we come to the communion table, as we begin to worship, I want you to, to meditate on the simple fact that it pleased God. Everything that took place on the cross of Calvary, that it brought pleasure to him because of your salvation. Let's meditate and worship.